Faith matters. Assalamu alaikum. You are listening to The Voice of Islam, where we bring you Faith Matters, a program devoted to taking questions on a variety of contemporary and religious issues, where you, our listeners, set the agenda by the questions you ask. You can send in your questions at faithmatters at voiceofislam.co.uk. And if you have Sky Digital, this program is also available for viewing on Muslim Television Ahmadiyya, channel 787. Alternatively, you can open it up on YouTube. Go to YouTube, put in the words MTA Online 1, Faith Matters, the name of the program, and the question you're after. And if you don't find the answer right there, you know what to do. Email us on The Voice of Islam on Faith Matters at voiceofislam.co.uk. With that, it's my pleasure to welcome two regular panelists on Faith Matters, but always a pleasure to welcome both these gentlemen back. Assalamu alaikum. Gentlemen, welcome to Faith Matters. Of course, to my immediate right is Dr. Zaid Ahmed Khan Saib, who's president of the Qazar Board of Jurisprudence in the UK. Assalamu alaikum, Dr. Sahib. And to his right is Maulana Abdul Ghani Jahangir Sahib, who is head of the French desk for the Amdiya Muslim community here in the UK. Assalamu alaikum, Jahangir Sahib. Um, our first question comes from Arbaz Rabi. Um, Assalamu alaikum. And the question is, um, Jahangir Sahib, how can a Muslim logically prove life after death from the Quran to an atheist? If yes, if, if you can, how is it done? I think we need to set the premise of this question first. And it should be that uh, in principle, an atheist who I would expect to believe in the principles of science as they're known today, shouldn't have any, um, how would I say, any uh, reason to not accept the fact that there could be life after death. As, as a matter of principle, because science today accepts that life came from death, meaning that existence came from non-existence in the first place. They do recognize that. Our universe at one point wasn't there, and then it was, it was here. It, was, it, it became existent, and so it doesn't show in any way that this couldn't happen once again. In principle, therefore, nobody can reject it that it's, in, it's logically impossible. Nobody can say that. It's logically possible. From, but going from there to, to proving that it actually does exist is quite a step. And one would be tempted to say that, well, one can only wait to die and find out, mm -hmm. before, you know, because in this life we can't actually go there and come back. Nobody has uh, been known to have done that. And therefore, there can't be any proof that we can take from having gone there and bringing it back to show that it actually exists. Nevertheless, what we should be looking for should be, therefore, um, are there, is there anything coming from the other side? Is there anything coming from the spiritual world at all? Because if there is, then it would mean, it would seem to suggest that there is something else apart from this physical life that we, that we have here on Earth. And luckily, we do find much coming from the other world. In particular, Allah himself says that don't you see that I brought you to life when you were dead, you were nothing? He said, I will bring you again to life after you have died. So he is de declaring this as what he's going to do. Now, how do we believe this? It's because he says also that I know that you have many doubts. Mm -hmm. So therefore, I'm going to tell you of things which are to come, mm -hmm. which you will see will be fulfilled. And when they are fulfilled repeatedly, every time I tell you something will happen, it does come to pass then you will know that, that the promise of your Lord is true. Mm -hmm. So this is the only, really, you know, the only way that we can know 
that there is something else out there. Now, I myself have posed this question to many atheists and told them that, look, this is what God said to this certain person, this is what happened. And it kept on happening again and again and again, exactly as had been predicted. And it's still happening today. Mm. There are so many people in the Ahmadiyya community to, to whom these things happen. Mm. And uh, can you explain how these things are occurring? How can human beings who do not know, who have no knowledge of the future, how can they know these things? And I have never found an answer. Mostly it's we don't understand, we don't have an answer, or I have another meeting, I, I'll have to go now. Mm -hmm. So basically they evade the question as much as they can because there is no answer except that these, this knowledge must be coming from somewhere else, a non-human source. Mm -hmm. So that is a, 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 the, the only in inferential proof that we have that there was something else after death. And just building on it, we've got a later question which I think we'll take now, which comes from Ifran Tobin, Toby from the Midlands in the UK linking he's got a series of questions but his first one perhaps if we can take now is um there's some that say why believe in a non-entity so you know atheists sort of put it that god doesn't exist and yet you have this why great believe belief and yeah. yeah well i mean there are many things that scientists believe in that don't don't really exist today and uh, they believe in them mainly to be able to explain away the difficulties that they have to face to, to, to be able to show that how life actually appeared, how the universe actually appeared. So they have this lovely, uh, you know, fluffy um, idea which is called the multiverse, mm -hmm. that if there's an infinite number of, of universes, then mathematically there would be a, enough, you know, uh, there would be en enough universes there, as they're infinite, for one of them to be like our universe. Otherwise, the, the, the mathematics behind the statistics of, of anything happening in the world as we know it today are so mind-boggling that they're absolutely impossible to take place, mathematically speaking. But nobody knows anything of the multiverse. It's just a, a concept that doesn't really exist, but they talk about it as if it's something which is actually there. There are so many other things like black holes, for example, which are an, an inference from, from mathematical calculations but nobody's actually gone to a black hole to actually film one or see one or anything like that. Apart from in Hollywood, I think. They've done yes, of course, we might find them in Hollywood, <laughs> but uh, we, don't, we know nothing of them. There is also dark matter. There is also this. And we don't know anything about uh, dark matter except what mathematically has to be occurring now. But nobody knows anything about what dark matter is, and yet they, be they believe that it must be there because it has to fill in the gaps in these calculations which are coming up. So there are many things in science which are taking on, taken on mere belief and w or what believers like to call faith because they like to turn the, the tables on the science and say, well, you'd say you're condemning us for faith, for our faith, but you, you base a lot of things on faith alone with nothing to substantiate it, you see. So it's a bit fresh coming from uh, people of a scientific background to say that all is nice and hunky-dory in science. Why, do, why go to religion where you have to believe in things that, you know, that are non-entities? But the fact of the matter is God is not a non-entity. He is an entity of a totally different nature, but he does reveal himself and proves his existence by giving knowledge to human beings which is well beyond their ken. And so therefore we know that he has to be there for this to, to be occurring. But what is he? That is an, another question in, in itself. Just before we move on um, from this, I mean, the kind of logical conversation you sometimes have when and our questioner puts it in the context of both logic and the Holy Quran, but here was the Holy Quran revealed almost 1400 odd years ago to a man who was illiterate, who didn't have a formal education. 
Yet what's profound about the Holy Quran in itself is what was said there, which even if one casts one's eye back just to this current century, there's so much which has happened which was predicted then. The Holy Quran is a remarkable book, as you rightly say, and it was revealed again to a man who was not uh, literate. He could not read, he could not write. So one has to question is where would he get this information from? And what was the information that is contained in the Holy Quran? It is about th things that have happened in the past, things that were happening at that time, and about prophecies that would happen and continue to happen 1400 years after that book was revealed. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that you have to remember is that that book has remained unchanged. That again is proof that there is something that has overall protection of that message that was contained in the Holy Quran. And we would say to anyone in this day and age a challenge, find someone who is illiterate, who cannot read, who cannot write, and ask them to compile a book of this size, which, which not only contains things about past, about present, but about future, which continue to be fulfilled. I mean, that is just not possible. So we have to accept the fact that the Holy Quran is a miracle, and some, a miracle that non-believers cannot explain, no matter what they do, is they, they cannot explain that. There are many facets of it that you can take out. The Holy Quran has been memorized by m perhaps millions of people mm -hmm. over the centuries. Give us an example of any other book which has been memorized by a handful of people of the size of the Holy Quran. That again is proof that there is some special quality in this. And the proofs and the, what we have seen in our own lifetime about how transport has progressed, the mode of transport. The Holy Quran 1400 years ago when camel was the mode of transport at that time, that the, the camel would, would, be, uh, would not be used in future for transport. Who could have predicted that at that time? and the types of modes of transport of how they would be powered, fuels that would be used for powering them 1400 years ago and we in our own lives daily fill up our petrols into our cars without even thinking about mm. it. And this was predicted by the Holy Quran as, as to how energy would be sourced and how it, be, it would be used. Then we have the coming together of seas. You know, there are oceans that are uh, in, in the earth which are separated by land. And who could have thought that these oceans would one day become connected? But 1400 years ago, the Holy Quran says that there's a body of water that is separated by land, and one day that they will meet. And the Suez and the Panama Canals, again, are examples of these. There are, there are so many prophecies in the Holy Quran which have been fulfilled, continue to be fulfilled, and again, give up the secrets of the how life began. These, again, are contained in the Holy Quran about the expanding universe, about the black hole, where did life come from? You know, it's a remarkable uh, book uh, and it has, to be, uh, it has to be given to us by a being, by an entity about whose powers we are not fully able to comprehend and science cannot explain these. And even in this respect, science cannot explain how a person who was illiterate could actually compile such a, such a book about prophecies. So there we have it. We do not believe in a non-entity. And this is the proof that that is an entity which has always been there. Indeed, and the entity is a God Almighty. Um, when you were talking about logic, I, I've always found that you know, when you're talking to an atheist, ultimately when they do go back 
to the Big Bang and say that was what created everything, then one of the things I've, I said, well, conceptually speaking, the entity then you believe that I may call God Almighty the Almighty Creator for you, you're associating the term Big Bang with it, and for you, that is the creator. And everything around you ultimately has a creator. So why defy something which every other facet of your life demonstrates that everything has a creator, everything has a beginning and an end? Exactly, but uh, yes. I think sometimes lost on some of our friends there. Um, Jazakumullah, gentlemen, for that. Um, Arbaz has a, another question, um, question um, which is about the two words Nabi and Rasul, and which website is the best to find these meanings? Jahangir Saab, if you could b just give a definition of the two. Uh, <coughs> well, uh, the very basic definition of Nabi is somebody who receives Naba from Allah, which means news about things of the future, things to come. So we, we say in English that he's a prophet. Okay. This is what it means, that's the basic definition. And Rasul is somebody who's sent with a risala, which is a message. So he's a messenger. Mm -hmm. So we say a prophet and a messenger. And the best website to find uh, the true meanings of this is www.alislam.org. Zakmullah, for that second. Just before we sort of move on to our next question, one sub-question to that. Are Nabi and Rasul standalone terms, or does one, do you have to be one to be the other? You see, uh, in the Holy Quran, Allah says that he does not reveal the knowledge of the unseen except to one that he chooses as a messenger, as a Rasul. So we know that the definition of Nabi is one who receives this kind of, these kind of messages anyway. But here he's speaking of the Rasul, and he says, I don't choose anything except the Rasul for this. So therefore the Rasul is a Nabi and a Nabi is a Rasul. It's just two different ways of, of calling that person who's sent by God with this knowledge and a message to mankind. So the Nabi is a, the, is a Rasul, the, the Prophet is a messenger and also the messenger is a Prophet. And my thanks to Urbaz for both uh, your questions. Um, we'll go to Zafar Ahmed Saib in the USA for the next question. And Dr. Zaid Saab, his question relates to um, caring for the elderly. And he talks that we're seeing, and in, indeed this is true, especially in, the, in what we term, more generally speaking, the Western world. But the uh, population is increasingly, uh, is increasing in age. And he's wondering what's the correct Islamic teaching with regards to um, looking after the elderly, both for, I suppose, society, community and family. Well, Islam lays great emphasis on looking after the society in general and different sections of the society in particular. And we find in the life of the Holy Prophet ﷺ, from his own example, we find examples of how he would treat different sections of society and how caring and how humane his, his care was. Even before he claimed to be the Prophet of Allah, he had this aura about him. And when he received, in fact, the first revelation, he was very much perturbed as to what was happening to him. And he went home and uh, his wife, Hazrat Khadija, when she found out about it, mm -hmm. she said that God will not let you go to waste because of these ennobling qualities that you have and you look after the society and you look after the, those who are oppressed and those people in society. So the elderly form an important part of any society and uh, the assistance and help that we provide to, that, to them, both as individuals and as society, is of extreme importance, going back from the example of the Holy Prophet But first and foremost, we must also say that um, the family 
has the uh, primary uh, function, has the prim primary uh, duty that they are the ones on whom this responsibility does indeed fall. And we find in the Holy Quran several references for how we should treat our parents, and especially when they get old, that we have to look after them and not uh, even say oof to them. That is what the Holy Quran teaches us, is that we should always be kind to them, lower the... Should your express any exasperation, you know, if they behave yeah. in a childish mm. way or anything you like that. Yeah. You should lower your wing of humility to them, mm -hmm. is that you should always look after them. So this is, uh, th th this is the responsibility of the family as such. The Holy Prophet ﷺ was asked repeatedly by, by people around him as to whom they had the most responsibility to. And he would say that your mother, and when asked again, he would say your mother. When asked again, he would say mother. And then on the fourth time, he would say your father. So that brings into focus is that the attention and care that we have to our parents has to be our primary duty as well. However, there may be instances when we do, when an elderly person does not have any family left behind who are able to look after them and then it becomes the responsibility of the society, of an Islamic society. This is the function that we, we have been taught by the Holy Quran, that it is the society that who will look after these people. And that's, that care has to be a very humane care. Unfortunately, we find instances in certain parts of the, of the world when elderly people are cast aside and they're not looked after as they should be looked after. But Islam lays great emphasis that the care of these people should always be of utmost care, kindness and humility at, at every time. Actually, I, I remember a case where the fourth Khalifa of our community, Rahimahullah, he was in Germany answering questions from the German public in a little function. And there was one elderly lady there, a German lady, who had come with an Ahmadi family. And she stood up and said, I'd like to say something. I don't have a question, but I'd like to say something. She said, this family here looks after me. They call me Oma, which means grandmother. And they are like my own family. They look after me, they take care of me. My family, I don't have anybody who does that for me. They are like my own children, my flesh and blood. And I want to thank you for giving these wonderful teachings to your people to such a degree that these people are helping me like this. And Huzur was very pleased. And he said that this is how I want society to be and this is how, this is how I want Ahmadis to behave. So in a truly Islamic society, bef before the state even has to intervene in the case of the, of the elderly, like uh, Dr. Sahib has said, who have no family to look after them, you will find Ahmadi families or true Muslim families, they will step forward all by themselves. And they will not allow a person like that to remain alone. The first thing they will say if they find out that this person is alone, or the, the poor thing, we have to go and look after her or him. And they will immediately come forward and even try to bring them into their own homes. This is what is supposed to be done. We remember as well one last incident which I'd like to quote because it's very revealing of the importance of looking after the elderly. The Holy Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu on one of the very important uh, uh, military expeditions that he had to, to take part in, when the Muslims were coming forward, he, s he found one Muslim who was coming as uh, everyone else was and he said, is, do you not have elderly parents that you, whom you, you need to take care of? He said, yes, I do. He said, well, go back to them. That will be your fight in the, in the, in the way of God. You don't come with us, you go and look after them. Mm. You see, even when the, it was a question of Islam's life or death, even then he sent him back. So this is just to show how important it is. Jazakumullah, gentlemen. Although I, I would just finish by saying that when one looks through parts of the Islamic world vis-a-vis -vis some parts of the Western world, so to speak, 
often you find the care of elderly, the actual community element of care of the elderly is perhaps more focused in, in the Western world than it is in the structured form, than it is in our Islamic countries. And uh, that's uh, perhaps a sad reflection on those countries not recognizing the example of the Holy Prophet. So so, uh, unfortunately, Muslims have moved away from the true teachings and the character of the Holy Prophet mm-hmm. and they do not actually focus back upon the true teachings of Islam. Um, and at the same step we have to, as you rightly say, in, in Western countries, we do find that the care is of, uh, can be of an excellent nature. And they are looking to the future. They're looking at the aging population. And if you look at the numbers and statistics at the moment that we have that down the years as to how many people will be over this age of 80 and so on, the numbers are phenomenal. And so the care in that respect, obviously, is something that has to be there in, in place so that pe- uh, people in their elderly age can be looked after as such. Gentlemen, just as a final point on this community, I, I was guest visiting here recent, well, not so recently, at one of our last events, certainly pointed out just the nuance in words when they heard refer to the elders rather than the elderly. Mm-hmm. They said in that one word, so much more respect, more respect and reverence, and reverence exactly, a- and recognition that there is much to be learned from these people yes. rather than just in terms and of and giving. Which, which, which brings us back again to the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam who said, those who do not respect our elders mm-hmm. and are not kind to our younger ones are not of us. Mm-hmm. So it's very, very important. I think if these values are shown to the, the Muslims and to, to, to the West as well, everyone can benefit across the board. And we have to remind people that the Ahmadiyya movement is the renaissance of these values within Islam. So if people want to see these values in practice, they are more more than welcome to come and see how we live in society and, uh, you know, relive the the experience that the Prophet had established during his lifetime. Gentlemen, my thanks also to Zafar Ahmed from the United States for his question. Um, We're going to move to our next questioner, who's Ephraim. Tobin, Toby from the Midlands UK, Assalamu alaikum, and thank you for your questions. One, as I've said already, we've answered. Um, we'll go on to our, his next question, Jangi Saab. He says, which comes from a non Amdi Muslim Hafiz, uh, um, at the same time, who says that at the time of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, there was a man who claimed to be a prophet of Allah. And so at that time, Hazrat Abu Bakr, who was a companion of the Holy Prophet of Islam, and indeed the first caliph of Islam, went on to fight him. If Mirza Ghulam Ahmed says this non-Amdi Muslim Hafiz has claimed to be a prophet from Allah, why can't Muslims fight him and his followers to death, bearing in mind they don't recognize his claim? The question really is, why didn't the Prophet Muhammad go and fight against that person who's called Musaylima al-Kadhab? So Musaylima, the arch liar, he didn't go and fight against him. He didn't go and, and have him killed because he declared to be a prophet, you know, a rival prophet at his time. He didn't do that. So we cannot imagine that uh, his first caliph, you know, Allah be pleased with him, would have done anything which the Prophet himself didn't do. The fact of the matter is that during the life of the Prophet Muhammad Musaylim al-Kadhab declared to be a prophet very clearly and the Holy Prophet was well aware of it, but didn't do much more than that. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, after his demise, what happened was that he raised a rebellion against the, the Islamic State. That was a totally different matter in, in itself. 
And the first caliph dealt with that matter and not the matter of his declaring himself a prophet, which is irrelevant. So to conflate the two is just grave injustice. It would be like saying that the, that the first caliph had a completely different agenda to that of the prophet and that was not the case. He had to do that because of a, diff for a totally different reason, which is totally understandable. I, I think that's very clear and often there's a great deal of confusion in the mind and ultimately, I mean, the Holy Prophet's example, he used to pray for his enemies uh, rather than uh, invoke any kind of uh, action against them. Um, the, the, the other thing with regard to the Hazrat Musiyah is the Hafiz Sahib has pointed out, our difficulty is that the Holy Prophet has labelled the Promised Messiah as a prophet. So taking that definition into mind, how can we go against the definition that the Prophet has said that he will be Nabiullah, that he will be a messenger of God. So by accepting that he is Nabiullah, or the Prophet as described by the Holy Prophet we have no other option but to believe him in him as a prophet and a messenger of it's God. It's a catch-22, isn't it? <laughs> if, he if he says that I've come from God, here I am, they say, are you a prophet? He'll say, well, no. Well, then you're not the right one because the Prophet some said you'd be a prophet. Mm -hmm. So are you a prophet? Yes, I am. Well, we need to kill you now. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you're done whether you, whether you do it or you don't, you're done anyway. So this is a, a rigmarole which they have created themselves. It's totally artificial, as Dr. was saying. They, they should just follow what the Prophet said and be content with that. Gentlemen, Jazakumullah. And just on, on that point, I think quite often it's important for our non uh, and the Muslim viewers to know that there is a lot which is said against the community in an erroneous fashion about beliefs and uh, but um, the best way and it was the way of the Holy Prophet peace be upon him is you should go and search for the truth yourself and I if you've got any questions specifically um, we'll be happy certainly to answer those on this program and others that appear on MTA. Um, there's a couple of other questions which are in a way linked to this, which builds on the point Jahangir Saab, indeed Dr. Zaid Saab, you've both commented on. Are the signs of the second coming of Hazrat Jesus al-Islam um, and also linked to this, why is it that the signs fulfilled during the lifetime of Mirza uh, in, before and during his lifetime, that Mirza Ghulam Ahmed was the long-awaited Messiah as awaited by Muslims indeed uh, across different religions. Jangir Saab, first of all, the, the two are, are one because it's certainly the Amdiya Muslim belief that yes, there were signs specific to the second coming and yes, those signs were fulfilled in the advent of Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, who we hold to be the promised Messiah. Well, two signs which come to mind, there were so many, there were thousands of signs, thousands of signs are there. But two which come to mind are that when the Prophet Muhammad said that Jesus would come, Jesus son of Mary, Isa ibn Maryam, or the Masih ibn Maryam, he also gave a description which was totally different to the one which he gave of the Jesus he saw among the dead prophets um, in heaven during his spiritual ascension when he, when he met all those different prophets. He described the Jesus he saw there as being of a rosy colour, of, uh, uh, you know, with large shoulders, broad shoulders, and with curly hair. That's the description he gave. On the other hand, when he describes the Messiah to come, mm -hmm. when he sees him in a dream, he doesn't know who he is. So he asks, who is that person? And he's told, this is the Messiah, son of Mary. Now, had, he all, had it been the same description, he would have recognized him. And he said he was a, a man of medium build, with, uh, uh, of a light brown hue, and with straight hair. So he's obviously talking about somebody else here. 
Now, strangely enough, or is it, the promised Messiah fits that description, you know? So if they're waiting for the other Messiah who has a totally different description, they're barking up the wrong tree, I'm sorry to say. The other sign was that he'd come to the east of Damascus. And it so happens that the village of Qadian is straight on east from Damascus. Now, nobody can choose their place of birth. Mm -hmm. You can't go back in time to go and be born wherever the prophecy should be fulfilled. And so Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed fulfills that prophecy too. But there are, like I said, so many other signs. I think we'll just content ourselves with these two today, if, if we may. Dr. Saab, just before we move on, the, this comes back to it, is the relative or lack of understanding of perhaps for other Muslims to answer, perhaps a question more for them than for the two of you, mm. is where is, you know, if it is the original Jesus who is to return, um, you know, it's certainly the Amdiya Muslim belief um, that, that the first Jesus, and God be pleased with him, fulfilled his mission as was required from his messenger and uh, passed away, uh, had a natural death. Mm. What, in, you know, uh, Muslims still need to answer, the other Muslims need to answer the question, if indeed it's the same Jesus returning, where is he today? Absolutely. I mean, we, we've talked about the physical world and the spiritual world and the universe as such. And we have to ask, uh, is he in the heavens? And where are the heavens? And how far are the heavens from here? How many light years are they here? How many trillions of miles away are they here? But having said all that, they have to answer the question as to the death of Jesus, uh, Jesus, son of Mary, may peace be upon him. This is the actual crux of the matter, isn't it, as such? As far as Christians are concerned, and as far as Muslims are concerned, this has to be the pivotal question that has to be answered. Mm -hmm. And the longer that we continue to wait for that, Jesus, son of Mary, to actually descend down from the skies, from the heaven, they have to answer this question is that according to biblical and Quranic proofs, can we prove that Jesus salam, son of Mary is still alive in heaven? Or does the Holy Quran speak that Jesus like all other prophets has died a natural death and has, has his physical body has been buried? Mm -hmm. So this is the question and this is where the con uh, conflict comes from, is that the death of Jesus has to be proved by the Ahmadiyya community or by Islam and the non-death of Jesus has to be proved by the other, other, other Muslims. Mm -hmm. However, looking at the Holy Quran, and this is the purpose of the coming of the Promised Messiah that he proved from traditions of the Holy Quran, from biblical traditions, and from other proofs, scientific and med medicinal proofs, that Jesus who was put on the cross did not die on the cross, but was taken down. And he had come to fulfill his, his own uh, mission was to preach to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and that is why he had to migrate from there to actually fulfill that mission. So the Holy Quran on the one hand is talking about the death of all prophets and as Jesus was a prophet of God then we have to categorically Muslims have to accept that if we believe in the Holy Quran and if we believe that it is the truth of the Holy Quran then that proves that Jesus son of Mary did die a natural death and that Jesus son of Mary will not be coming to back to this earth because God says that whoever dies uh, is there is a barrier and they cannot come back to, to this earth. And at the same time, as Jahangir Sab uh, has said, that the Prophet wasallam, keeping within this view has given two descriptions of the Messiah that would come in the latter days. And that were two different people in two different guises. 
as far as the timing of the coming of the Messiah are concerned and the signs, as Jahangir Sahib says, we have considered these in previous programs, but we have the signs of the earthquakes, we have the signs of the plague, we have the moral degradation of humanity as such, as to when, uh, when the Messiah would be needed, when, when he was most at need. Pestilence is, is an interesting one because we know that the plague was a sign that for the, for the latter days, and we know that the plague at the time of the promised Messiah was rampant in India. But as far as pestilence is concerned, we know the influenza uh, pestilence of 1918 after the First World War. That took away 50 million lives, it is said, in current, uh, current. So the Prophet of Allah has, talken, has talked about the latter days and how the, they would be ravaged by this type of pestilence. And, and that is what we have seen. So the signs are clearly out there. And the time for the coming of the Messiah was that time and the promised Messiah himself has said if I had not come then someone else would have come because this this was the time that had been predicted by the Holy Prophet for the coming of the second Messiah and for the salvation of mankind. Gentlemen, Jazakumullah, thank you very much and my thanks also to Ephraim Tobin for his questions. Um, I will move on to our next question which comes from Muhammad Nushad from the from Sri Lanka. Assalamu alaikum um, and thank you for your question. Jangir Sahib, his question is what are the types of najis and how can we get purified from it? Perhaps if you can just explain the, his question first. Well, najis just means impurity, mm -hmm. it means uncleanliness and so I think everybody understands when they're not clean. Mm -hmm. If for example it's, uh, if their bodies have been exp exposed, for example their arms, their faces, their feet etc. have been exposed but before they come to prayer, they're supposed to wash all that dirt off by doing the wudu or the, the, uh, the ablutions. Um, but if their body has been exposed to more you know, impurities and they're, they're totally you know, impure, then they themselves will know that they need a shower. And so this Islam re recommends exactly that. Go and take a shower. You know? And uh, the Prophet Muhammad said that the very minimum for a Muslim is he should take at least he or she at least one full bath or shower, well it means a shower really, uh, a week, at least one. But he actually uh, has, it has been reported to have, to have said that if a person has a river flowing near his house and if he takes a bath in that five times a day, would there be any impurity left on his body? So this companion said no. So he was giving that as an example for, to illustrate something else, saying that if they pray five times a day, there will not be any spiritual impurities either. It will be like taking a spiritual bath. But it just goes to show how much the Prophet ﷺ, how much emphasis he put on, um, having, on bathing or having sh taking showers. So instead of going into all the details of what are the kinds of impurities out there, I'm sure everybody has some kind of notion of that. Yeah. Basically, if the body is not clean, then it should be clean, cleaned and people should re try to remain clean at all times as much as possible. Very clear, straightforward answer there and uh, my thanks also to Muhammad Nushad for his question. Our next one comes from Tamara Rodney uh, from the USA. Assalamu alaikum and thank you for your um, uh, question. First question, there's three questions all sort of interlinked. Uh, Dr. Zaid Saab, if I start with you. Um, is why do Amdi Muslims avoid clapping at their events? Um, and um, I suppose there's a reference being made here to our, the annual conventions that take place of the community across the world, where rather than clapping, you hear 
what are called naras in Urdu, slogans are raised in praise of God Almighty, in praise of uh, elements of you know the the community in terms of the community itself of the religion, but no clapping. Well, different societies and different cultures have different ways of showing appreciation, mm -hmm. be it after a speech or be it after any other event. Um, applause is something that we find are in some societies, but in not all societies, perhaps in Arab societies, we do not find that either. Mm -hmm. So it is uh, just a cultural uh, thing that we find that clapping is done in, 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 in other societies. However, uh, the, the other thing that we also bear in mind is that clapping was part of the worship of the non-believers, the disbelievers at the time of the Holy Prophet Sallallahu mm -hmm. So perhaps Muslims would avoid clapping in order not mm -hmm. to give the impression that this was part of their worship as well. But at the same time, we, we must point out that clapping is not totally forbidden as such. Even during worship when an Imam does make an error and if there are women in the congregation, then in order to attract attention of the Imam to a mistake that he may have made, then the women are permitted to clap, uh, clap as such. Whereas if taking it on the side of the men, the men will glorify Allah and say Subhanallah. So that actually may give us a link, a clue as to why in, in our gatherings, uh, glorification of Allah is considered to be of a better merit and better form of showing a, pr a praise at that time. And that is why we find that there are slogans that are raised in the glorifying the greatness of Allah uh, and which the crowd then, then join in as, as such. Perhaps that is more meaningful uh, than the clapping that, that uh, takes place in other societies, but we do show our appreciation in a different manner. So just by being different does not mean to say that we do not show appreciation uh, to, uh, the, to the function that has been carried out. So this, this is important to realize that it is just a cultural aspect of life and it is not as such that we do not show appreciation at that time. However, in, 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 in England, for instance, where we are, if we have gatherings where there are a mixture of uh, uh, the uh, local people, indigenous people, who actually will clap themselves, then we do join in, in the clapping as such. It is not totally forbidden to actually show our praise in that respect, in that sense as well, and we do do that. Jazakumullah. Um, linked to that, um, Dr. Saib and Jangir Saab raised this issue of the slogans, of, you know, the, the appreciation of God Almighty. Um, and our question is asking, is there history behind this? Is there a sort of a preferred Islamic practice? Yes, the raising of the takbir, for example, saying that Allahu Akbar, Allah is greater than all things. That dates back to the Prophet Sallallahu time, where he himself on certain occasions had told the Muslims that they should respond to the taunts of the, uh, or the glorification made by the, the, the idolaters of, of, their, of their imaginary gods mm -hmm. by saying that Allah is greater than all that, mm -hmm. and so they should proclaim it. And these were slogans raised then, it continued throughout Islam and it's still continuing today. We're not, we're, you know, certainly not the only Muslims uh, to raise slogans, it's a well-known practice around the Muslim world. So there is a, a, a history behind it. And is there a difference between when you use the word takbir and slogans per se? Well, takbir is a kind of slogan, that's mm. all it is. There were mm. other slogans too, depending on you know, the occasion, etc. But it's just one kind of, uh, of a slogan. But it's the, we could say it's the main one, because it's the, the fact that we're pro proclaiming that God is above everything, is greater than everything. So that is kind of the main slogan. 
Gentlemen, Jazakumullah, that's very clear yet again, um, as ever. And my thanks also to Tamara Rodney for your question. Our next question we're traveling to Ghana for, which comes from Abdul uh, Varis Ishaq. What is the reasoning, and this is about in the context of marriage, and um, he's asking about, obviously, the Amdiya Muslim community, Dr. Zaid Saab, is a community within Islam. It's, a, uh, it's, we believe, to be the renaissance of Islam. But he asks that he's come across a practice that generally he sees that Amdi uh, Muslims do not marry non-Amdi Muslims. And uh, what's the reasoning behind that? Well, perhaps it's, it's got a historical background to it, because during the lifetime of the promised Messiah, uh, marriages with non-Ahmadis did take place up to a point when the uh, non-Ahmadis non declared Ahmadis to be non-Muslims and Kafirs and outside the pale of Islam. And by having made this uh, uh, on us, made this burden upon us, then the Promised Messiah uh, deferred the matter and said that Ahmadis should not marry non-Ahmadis because of the problems that uh, th that would that would uh, come forward from that, so it was because of the uh, non-Ahmadi's stance of declaring Ahm Ahmadis and the Promised Messiah as being false. God forbid, it was it stems back from that that Ahmadis should avoid marrying non-Ahmadis in order not to create disorder from their angle and not from our our angle. So this is important to to understand that it was because of their actions that the Promised Messiah took this view that it would be beneficial not for Ahmadis to marry non-Ahmadis so that this conflict does not occur as such. So it was something, as you said, that historically, of course, everyone was Muslims and the Muslims and still do regard themselves very much as part of Islam. But other Muslims at that time indicated that Ahmadis weren't, in their eyes, Muslims. And then I, I take it there were, you know, there were instances where they were unfair on perhaps uh, and the women, I guess, who were married into their families. How does this square, Jahangir Saab, and Jazakumullah, Dr. Saab, with the sort of notion, which is the counter, which is put to this, that within Islam, uh, a Muslim is allowed to marry anyone who is deemed to be of the book, and generally speaking, in general applications, that's perceived to include um, the, the Jews and uh, the Christians as well, because we believe the Abrahamic faiths have this natural transition towards Islam as the completion of faith. So the general instruction was that anyone of the book is someone who's permitted in marriage. Well, that's the general perception, but actually it's uh, been clarified also in the Quran that there shouldn't be people who are mushrikeen, so there shouldn't be people who are also idolaters. Mm -hmm. So in the case of Jews, it would probably be quite clear-cut that they're not idolaters, they don't pray to statues, etc., they don't bow down before idols. But in the case of Christians, it becomes a little bit hazy because uh, over the centuries, many Christian uh, denominations have become idolatrous, you know, uh, to a large degree. And uh, to the to the to the extent that uh, you know they'll have idols of uh, of their own making, but they're made with their own hands, not only in their churches but also in their homes. So as long as they don't belong to these kinds of denominations, or if they're non-practicing from those denominations, they don't actually you know put up crucifixes and things like that in their homes, even though they're Catholic or whatever Protestant or whatever. In those in those cases, they could be married to uh, Muslims, Muslim men. So why don't the, uh, is, is not the, the, the same the case for Muslim women? Mm -hmm. Why can't they marry out? It's because usually in families, it's the husband who you know, is at the, the helm of, of the ship. 
And so wherever he decides the family has to go, everyone has to go with him. And usually, religiously speaking as well, he was, he'll be the one who'll, who will have the final word. In many cases, this is what we see. And uh, therefore, if uh, a woman is married into uh, this kind of a family, then most likely her faith itself is going to suffer. And she will have to, you know, uh, capitulate to the faith of the husband. Mm -hmm. it, it happens much less in the case of a Muslim man marrying, you know, outside. And this is exactly what we see. Many women, are, uh, you know, get married to Muslim men and then they become, they become Muslims as well. But when we see in the other, uh, you know, in the, 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 the opposite, it, it sometimes happens that sometimes Muslim women try to, you know, bring in somebody. But it's always better in that case, for the sake of the children, for the sake of the faith, that the, Muslim, the non-Muslim man getting married to a Muslim woman converts to Islam first. And you'll see that these days Muslims will require that of the person. First you convert and then you can marry our daughter, you know. So whether it's a token conversion or what, that only God knows. But it's not the ideal situation. The ideal situation is to have a home where the children will be nurtured by two parents who share those common values. Mm -hmm. Now, in the case of the man, an exception is made because he still is in control to some degree. And if they're m monotheists as mothers, then chances are they're going to be giving very similar teachings to their children as a Muslim mother would have. Mm -hmm. So the damage is not so great. So in a way, it's, a, it's also a practical side to this as well, Dr. Sob, isn't it? About you know, if you're nurturing a family, you're trying to, I mean, generally speaking, even if you look at relationships where, you know, which aren't arranged or introduced or whatever, where two people almost, you know, they fall in love, find each other, that mm -hmm. even then, there's some common bonds that they're sharing, common viewpoints, common sort of values, uh, which they hope to instill in their children. I mean, you get classic examples of a mother being a churchgoer and the father isn't, you know, what, what does, how do the children, or a father is of one faith and a mother is of another, that children sometimes are slightly confused into what direction they should follow. I mean, you, you'd like your children to follow in your footsteps, you would like to think. So if, spiritually speaking or religiously speaking, we are of a certain religion, then you obviously want your children also to be brought up in that and, uh, and, 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 and continue their life within that religion. Of course, they have a choice as such because that is what man has been given. But if both husband and wife are, are of the same religion, as Jahangir Sahib has said, and they live their day-to-day -day life within the limits of that religion, then the children obviously will obviously take impart from, from that and be able to accept that and as, as their way of life. Whereas if you have two people who are, are of two different backgrounds or two different religions, I should say, uh, then there always is going to be a conflict as to which parent has more influence upon that child and which way will that child, child go. So that is important social aspect of marriage and that is what we want our children to be brought up in a peaceful coexisting society where we know that they will be good role models for society in, in future. Gentlemen, Jazakumullah for that and my thanks also to Abdul Waris for his question. Um, our next question comes from uh, someone that we hear from reasonably regularly, Dr. Mohammed Budan from Canada. Asalaamu Alaikum and thank you Dr. Saab, for your question. Um, Jahangir Saab, he writes that apart from the second part of the first pillar of Islam, is it true that the other four pillars are not specific to Islam but were also features of previous faiths? I think first we need to say what those pillars Absolutely. are. Yes. yes. Uh, the, fi the five pillars are, first of all, the declaration that there was no God but Allah and that Muhammad is his prophet. That's the first one. The second one is the uh, prayer as such. 
The third one is uh, the psalm, uh, yeah, it's the fasting, and then we have uh, the zakat, which is the the uh, charity, which is compulsory in Islam to, to you know out of your your revenue, and also um, the pilgrimage, the Hajj. So those are the five. Now, when we study any religion apart from Islam, we will find that there is something of that in all of them, perhaps barring Buddhism for the first one, because in Buddhism of some varieties today, they say there isn't any God. So it's a lot of introspection and finding the truth within yourself and there isn't any aspect of God to it. However, in their, in their past, they have been known to pray mm -hmm. to entities. There was recently a very big split in the, uh, among Buddhists, uh, those who believed in the, you know, the, the devas and the, the demigods, etc., and those who didn't. So there's a big rift among uh, s some branches of uh, Buddhism recently. So that shows that there is some kind of a belief in other entities apart from human and uh, humankind. Mm -hmm. So they, they do uh, share, therefore, all these things. There are elements of pilgrimage, there are elements of fasting, elements of charity, prayer, and the belief in one God. These, these are the things which we find as a, a running theme you know, throughout the religion. So to say that Islam you know, has all of those, and specifically those, and, you know, or one of them or two of them and the others don't share them is not correct. So the question, has been, has, is, the question is correct to say that, is it true? Well, it is true. Although the forms are very different. Mm -hmm. I mean, everybody has their own form of prayer. And even Allah says that in the Quran, we have taught every people their modes of worship. So it doesn't mean that they have to worship in exactly the same ways, but there are, very ma there are many similar ways. And in fact, the, the Muslim prayer is a very interesting one, if I may say, in that it contains postures which belong to all different major religions. Mm -hmm. In the different religions, we'll find that some people pray standing, some people pray by bowing, some people pray by sitting, and some people pray in, prost in prostration. And in Islam, which is the universal religion, it, all these elements have been combined into one. And so it's like we're playing out the history of religions within our prayer five times a day, at least. And uh, this is a kind of a unifying factor for the whole of mankind as well. In, in a way, you know, we believe Islam to be the final faith, which came to sort of build upon all the faiths that went before it. And I think it's demonstrable in the very pra practical example you just gave in the postures of prayer. Um, and my thanks, of course, to Dr. Saab for his question. Um, we'll move on to our final question, if I may. Um, we're into the last sort of five minutes. And we're going to take a question which comes from uh, Misbah Khaliq from Adelaide in South Australia. Um, I'm glad you're enjoying the program, Misbah. Something quite topical at the moment. There's been uh, information in the news which is about you know, well, we've talked about life on Mars, um, but there's been recent news item that NASA, the American Space Agency, wants to volunteers to go l to Mars and to discover where there's life there. But there's a bit of a twist to this, that they're asking for volunteers without the guarantee of return. It's so it's a one-way ticket to Mars. Um, so uh, she's asking, is there a Islamic perspective on such a matter? And does the concept of colonialization or the colonization rather, um, there may be colonialization thereafter, but <laughs> colonization on Mars, but you never know, um, on Mars. And does Islam have a view on this, Jahangir Saab? Well, the thing is, if somebody wants to go and live somewhere forever, they're doing that on Earth as well. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they leave their country and go to another country and never come back. 
Although in their old age, many people are heard to say that I want to go and dine my in the you know the, the place I was born in, mm. but uh, that's a normal thing. But some people just never do. It's so it'll be a little bit like that. And whoever goes there, and I've heard that there are thousands of people who've already signed up, many of whom, for some weird reason, are from the Republic of Ireland. God knows why. Well, you being partly Irish, you may have some. That's why I was a little <laughs> bit, uh, you know, I was quite interested by that. You know why? But um, I mean, if they want to go, then there's nothing Islamically against it. That's my point. You know, there's no harm in, in going out there. It's the big, the great unknown, and it's an adventure as such. If they want to go and they're successful, then we wish them all the success in the world. And beyond. And beyond, <laughs> yes. Indeed. The truth is out there. <laughs> the, the Quran talks about yeah. traveling, doesn't it? God says, Kul siru fil arde. Yes. That is within the earth as such, and that's justification for me take, going on holidays as such, as I suppose that he says you should go about in the land and, and be able to see how my creation is. And this again is the creation of Allah, isn't it? The whole universe is the creation of Allah. So if man is going to go along this journey, then he should go to see what God has created for him. And perhaps there is another new world out yes. there which uh, man can inhabit. I think God actually encourages it in one sense in uh, one of the verses in the Holy Quran where he says that, O company of jinn and men, if you can go beyond the confines of the heavens and the earth, then do so. But you will not do it except mm. with a very powerful logical argument in your favor, mm -hmm. which is the mathematical argument which they'll need. Mm. They can't go without ma mathematics. They'll have to have that on their side and they'll have to have power on their side to be able to get there. So God is in no way telling them that just stay on earth. Don't go out there. Of course not. So it's, it's, it's open. And, it's and open I suppose if you look at go. history, when you look at sort of the voyages of discovery, Magellan, Vespucci, <laughs> Columbus or whatever, they often embarked on not knowing what lay beyond the, the frontiers and they didn't know they were going to return. But it was that literally it's referred to as the age of discovery and perhaps this is the, the new age the of the discovery. The new age of discovery as well. Yeah, the, the, the other thing recently is the, the Kepler telescope. And what they have found is that there are billions of other Earths out there. And the nearest one actually is only 12 light years away. But that uh, transcends to 72 million uh, miles away from Earth. So I don't think in our lifetime there will be any program of going to those Earths. But it's, it's, it is said that the temperature on the Earths of, of these is very similar to the temperature that we have here, so that it could become a habitable planet as such in the future. And with that, we come to the end of today's program. I would like to thank our panelists and say jazakumullah to them for their very detailed and scholarly answers on an array of questions on a variety of different issues. And if you haven't found the answer to your question, you know what to do. Email us on faithmatters at voiceofislam.co.uk.